Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ERB underscore VFR. And again, I will be especially keen to retweet stories about visual matters that don't really work with radio. Though I have to say, I've been staying away from Twitter and everything else for a while now. Um, I actually obviously have been uh, away from the show for several weeks, um, but I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. Uh, And so I hope that you all are sheltering in place as well as you can. I've been trying to do the same as much as possible. Remember that hand washing for at least 20 seconds with soap and warm water is still the single best way to prevent yourself from getting COVID-19. Now, there have been definitely um, a number of deaths in the Valley. I was looking at the latest numbers this morning um, in the Valley, and so it definitely is touching us here in the Valley as far as not only people being infected, but unfortunately passing away. And so we do have to be really careful and really vigilant. And so from a sort of other perspective on this ongoing uh, misery that unfortunately we're all having to go through, um, there have been a few interesting effects uh, from lockdowns across the world. So for instance, seismometers have recorded a decrease in seismic activity. Now, seismometers are not designed to measure human activity, but it comes through anyways as higher frequency noise patterns over the lower frequency seismic waves that are actually what they're trying to measure. And so a geologist and seismologist in Belgium, for instance, remarked that his data looked more like winter vacation than a work day. And seismologists across the world have noted similar drops in noise caused by humans. Um, But this actually might be good news for, at least for geologists and seismologists, because this allows them to have a better chance to look at some of the natural sources for higher frequency noise patterns, such as waves and um, information from water tables and things like that. So it might actually give them a little bit of extra information that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to receive. And so seismologists across the world have noted similar drops in noise caused by humans. And in Venice, a drop in human activity caused by the shutdown has led the canals to become noticeably cleaner to the point where small fish have been observed by residents in the actual canals, which before would never have been possible. And so, of course, though, we really have to be careful because these effects will most likely be short-lived once the pandemic is under control because we're going to have to be careful to watch how environmental laws are relaxed 
unfortunately, as politicians suggest that getting the economy back on track is more important than the environment. Unfortunately, we've already seen this after the 2016 uh, recession. There was a huge push in China to get things back on track, and it was considered one of the least environmentally friendly uh stimulus uh packages and uh plans pretty much that could have happened and so unfortunately when people are thinking about economies and not about people themselves and their environment uh this sort of thing happens and given the current political uh system that we have right now in America this is a huge concern, and um, I think we have to be really careful to watch and to protest about anything that suggests that easing environmental laws is a good idea uh, for simply allowing some sort of economic benefit. And so I think that's important to remember. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on COVID-19. I think we're probably pretty uh all pretty much all aware of what's going on with it pretty much all aware of some of us have probably been tracking it in excruciating detail frankly i haven't been trying to do that because i value my sanity um and it's extremely frustrating to have to continually note this thing that probably would have been a lot better had we had um other uh <laughs> people in charge now um thinking of that you may have heard talk about reopening the country and i would strongly encourage people to make sensible choices about such things there are still not enough tests and not enough personal protective equipment in this country to make that safe despite what the government might like you to believe um I read a tweet from the uh, press secretary, who most of you have probably never even heard of because she doesn't actually do anything, it seems to me, except put out official lies. Um, and so she said that we've developed the uh, fastest and most safe testing, uh, which is just absolutely, completely wrong. Like, there's no way to spin that to make it not just a straight-up lie. And so it can be really frustrating. Um, and so I think that we have to be uh, really just individually making sure that we're supporting the community as best we can by staying in place for now until um, actual health experts say that it's okay to go out. And so, you know, if we actually had responded to this outbreak properly, we wouldn't necessarily be here now. But we don't live in the timeline where a no-nonsense woman who knew how to use power and would have listened to actual experts, whatever else her flaws, is in control of the government's response. Instead, we live in a country run by a man who is literally incapable of empathy from what I can see. And as far as I can see, cares about nothing other than himself and making money. And so we have to do our best to carry on with our own lives and 
again, that means that it's time for me to get back to my show. Um, I've been having a little bit of trouble adjusting to the work at home protocol because I'm used to a certain schedule, like I'm sure we all are, and um, fitting in the research for this show has been a little bit difficult for me in the last couple of weeks. Okay, but let us start tonight with updates on stories that I've continued to to report on over uh, several months, in fact. And so let us start off with a really exciting one, which is that NASA has announced that the InSight lander, which had been having issues with the failure of its heat probe to properly burrow into the surface of Mars, it seems like this is actually getting back on track. And so they decided to add in the addition of using a lander's arm in order to help get the probe back on track. And this seems to be working. They've tweeted out a couple of tweets in the last um, week, um, or in the last month, I should say, one back at the end of March and one just the other day. And so it looks like it's borrowing again, and hopefully it will be able to get down to a level where real observations can be taken. Now, again, it's going to be some time for it to be far enough down because they wanted it to be, I think, like 10 to 12 feet down, and it originally got about four inches down, um, if I'm remembering right. So that's quite a bit of difference. Um, it's going to definitely take some time. Uh, but NASA has worked tirelessly to give it the best chance of deploying properly. Now, the latest tweet is actually from this past Tuesday, and it shows the robotic arm helping to push the probe down into the soil of the red planet. So we'll have to keep an eye on its progress, uh, but you can learn more by searching for the hashtag SaveTheMole on Twitter. And so, yeah... Obviously, even if it never does get to where it needs to be, um, the InSight Lander has still and will continue to give us really good information about Mars and is part of just a stellar project of NASA missions that are just giving us so much information about the Red Planet. And so even if we don't get there ourselves as actual humans anytime soon, which uh, I am in favor of, um, I think that uh, we're still learning an amazing amount about it. And I think that this is really the way that we should be going, um, even though it's probably going to be de delayed a little bit by COVID-19, um, the Obviously, new lander is going to be um, going up and doing even more amazing research on Mars, and we're just learning so much about it. It's really just fa fantastic to be able to get that kind of um, information about this planet that is both like ours and also very much not like ours. Um, I always just think of for instance, Olympus Mons, which is a, you know, extinct volcano that is miles high. And it's hard to actually 
um, envision that, but it's just, it's such an interesting thing to think about how different the surface of, um, Mars is because for one thing, there hasn't been a lot of weathering going on there except for, um, wind weathering. So there's no running water at this point to actually weather things down the way they are on the earth. There's no snow falling and melting and getting into rocks and breaking them up and causing them to become, um, you know, boulders and then becoming rocks and then becoming, um, even smaller, uh, silt and sand. There's none of that going on except for with wind erosion. Okay. So our next story that we are doing an update on is the, uh, Oumuamua which was the first interstellar object to come into the solar system. I was actually shocked to read that it's been three years since that happened. And so there have been a host of theories about its origin and composition, everything up to and including that it was an alien spacecraft. Um, but one of the things that made it so unusual was, of course, its shape. It has this long, elongated cigar-like shape. And so new research published today in Nature Astronomy re reports on state-of-the-art computer models, which have given new insight into how it may have formed and began its wandering path, which made it go through the galaxy and caused it to wander through our local area. They suggest that it is a contorted fragment of a larger body that ventured too close to its host star. This could explain both the shape and how it obtained enough energy to be ejected from its home solar system, and again ended up cruising through ours. So authors Yun Zhang from the University of Cote d'Azur and Douglas Lin from the University of California, Santa Cruz, looked for an explanation that would be reproducible as it's clear that this object cannot be unique. The discovery of Oumuamua implied that the population of rocky interstellar objects is much larger than we would have previously thought, said, said Zhang in a press release. On average, each planetary system should eject in total about a 100 trillion objects, like Oumuamua. We need to construct a very common scenario to produce this kind of object. Now, the authors called their theory of formation the tidal fragment fragmentation scenario, wherein a body such as a planetesimal or even an Earth-like planet moves to within a few hundred thousand kilometers of the host star. This causes it to begin to be distorted by the gravitational pull of this larger body. This could cause the object to elongate and eventually to break up into hundreds of objects like Oumuamua. The tidal forces would have heated up the celestial body and made the um, made its composition very malleable and um, allowed it to be elongated and stretched into smaller pieces that would then be flinged out of the original solar system and set off on trajectories that would send them into interstellar space 
and eventually into other solar systems. Now, according to the model, the fragments could have an access ratio of 10 to 1 between the long and short axis, thus being rather cigar-shaped. Now, as the material cools, it quickly forms an outer shell, which could trap some materials such as water. These could then later be reheated and be outgassed when passing by, say, our sun, and cause the odd acceleration that we observed in Oumuamua. The new paper, quote, does a remarkable job of explaining a variety of unusual properties of Oumuamua with a single coherent model, said Matthew Knight, an astronomer at the U.S. Naval Academy and an expert on Oumuamua. As future interstellar objects are discovered in coming years, it will be very interesting to see if any exhibit Oumuamua-like properties. If so, it may indicate that the processes described in this study are widespread. Now, Knight was not involved in this particular study, but makes an important point that we will actually need to increase the base set of observations we have by examining future interstellar objects. It's unfortunately uh, unreasonable to base our theories on a single object. However, the model does explain most of what we've observed from Oumuamua and may yet be confirmed as the most likely model. Okay, so let us move on to another favorite topic of discussion on this show, which is, of course, birds. Now, I have to say that one of the few things that has actually been keeping me sane as I have spent time sheltering in place is the bird feeder outside of my living room window. Now, I have seen what seems to run the gamut of your local uh, sort of typical backyard birds, and it's just been incredibly lovely. Um, I've seen a mix of finches and um, woodpeckers sparrows, morning doves, chickadees, the occasional um, tufted titmouse and uh, nut thatch. Also, of course, uh, less desirably starlings and um, grackles, which are beautiful in some respects, but they're not exactly uh, songbirds. <laughs> as you probably know. And uh, they're also very, uh, they, they take up an entire bird feeder all by themselves when they're on there. So I've been struggling with that. Um, I've also been struggling with squirrels. Um, I, my husband bought me a baffle for my um, bird feeder the other day. We put it on and I was like, this isn't actually going to work because they're too smart. Um, and they are too good at doing this sort of thing. And then I, when I came up this, when I came out, uh, of my bedroom this morning and opened up the window, what did I see? But a squirrel on the top of the bird feeder. Um, though I, I haven't been seeing them as much during the day, so that's good. Um, it's definitely seemed to cut down on the squirrels, which I guess is the best that we can ask for. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's really been uh, lovely to be able to hear the goldfinches and the house finches and um, the other songbirds out there. And just to have a little bit of something that keeps me occupied and keeps me thinking about something other than uh, the existential crisis of what we are going through right now. So, uh, but let's talk about this actual story about birds. And so, a new paper from researchers at the Hainan Normal University in Haiku, in Haiku, China, observed that shorebirds are able to judge humans based on their outfits, potentially. Now, observing birds on tidal flats in the Guangxi Shuang autonomous region in southwestern China, they noticed that the birds would stand very close to locals who were fishing or digging for sandworms and snails. But when they tried when they tried to approach the birds, the birds would fly away. They hypothesized that the birds could tell the difference between locals and newcomers. And so they set up an experiment to see if birds reacted differently to the same person dressed as either a local fisherman or in a more casual outfit. Fishermen in the area wear conical straw hats, um, that kind of unfortunately very stereotypical um, depiction of people from China over many years had those conical hats, while these are actually, you know, they were actually used by some people in China, and these particular people do wear that kind of hat. Um, and so they had those straw hats, um, tall boots, and are often carrying tools. The casual outfit was just a windbreaker, some short boots, and a backpack. And so lead author Chang Zhang Fen and his colleagues walked towards the birds in one of the two outfits over 900 times. What they were doing was calculating a flight initiation distance, which was basically how close the researchers could get before one of eight different types of shorebirds decided that was too much and flew away. These included mainly small plover-like birds, but also gulls and egrets. Now, all of the birds flew away more quickly from researchers dressed in the casual outfit. Publishing in the journal Global Ecology and Conservation, they concluded that the birds were more wary of people who did not look familiar to them, suggesting that the birds were able to conserve energy and foraging time by developing a hierarchy of danger based on the outfit a human is wearing. Because fishermen are focused on marine life, they aren't they just aren't a threat to the birds, and thus the birds are able to develop a memory of this and judge threats accordingly. However, Andrea Griffin, a behavioral ecologist at the University of Newcastle in Australia, looking at the study, suggests that it might not be the clothes necessarily. She suggests that these highly visual animals might be noticing something like the fact that fishermen's conical hats conceal their eyes, whereas the casual outfits did not. That means that a spontaneous response to frontally placed eyes is a real possible explanation for the difference they observed, so perhaps this has nothing to do with learning, she said. Regardless of what they're looking at, it's clear 
at least to me, that they have some sort of pattern recognition that does allow them to conserve energy and time. John Marsluff, a wildlife scientist at the University of Washington in Seattle, who has done a lot of the work with crows, which we've talked about at uh, length around here, um, and with facial recognition. So with the crows, they're actually looking at facial recognition. The, the, the people's clothes change all the time, but it's the same face mask every time. And so this is the opposite. He says, you're learning that a whole community of water birds, something that we don't consider very, very smart, frankly, is also paying a cl close attention to how we treat them. He said, adding that research like this tells us that birds are paying a lot more attention to us than they, than you would have ever thought. And so that is really important because it is just part of this idea that we've been talking about for probably years at this point on the show that um, birds are more intelligent than we have previously given them the uh, rights to, and that a lot of animals are more intelligent than we once thought. And so we have to be really, um, I think it's really important to continue to do research into animal intelligence and hopefully that will help people realize that, you know, they're not just quote unquote dumb animals, that they do have higher cognitive functions and maybe it's worth paying more attention to them. Um, so, you know, like for instance, even though um, pretty much everyone agrees that big cats are amazing and shouldn't be mistreated, um, I know that the uh, on Netflix right now, apparently there is a uh, documentary series on the quote unquote Tiger King. Um, and I find it really distressing. Um, I think I've mentioned it before on this uh, program that there are more captive big cats in America than there are wild big cats left. And a lot of them are in these sorts of terrible conditions where they're held by people who don't have any business um, being in charge of these animals and they have them in conditions that are not um, conducive to the well-being of these magnificent creatures. And it's just very frustrating to see that there are all of these people who have obtained uh, big cats and keep them in just places that are not okay for them to be in. And so it's very frustrating. And they can say all they can say until they're blue in the face that they take good care of them. But big cats should be in places where they have places to roam and acres and acres and just oh it's just so frustrating to me um it's definitely something that makes me very sad and of course then we sometimes have incidents where the animals are um break free and then of course inevitably they are put down um and so it's it's frustrating um and i would hope that people would uh 
be a little bit um, more aware of this, uh, given this new uh, publicity. I haven't watched it, um, and I don't plan to. Um, your mileage may vary, but it just doesn't seem to me to be something that I would want to engage with. Um, I think it's something that, um, you know, it's, it's potentially good to highlight the plight of big cats in America, but um, I'm not sure that that's the slant, unfortunately, that the program takes. I think it's probably a little more voyeuristic than that. Um, and so I think that I would prefer not to engage with such a uh, program. There's plenty of other lovely things out there. Um, I've been trying to watch more educational things just because I feel like if I'm going to be home watching television um, at some point um, that I should be doing at least something that's not just uh, watching people on YouTube debunk uh, flat earthers and things like that, even though I do enjoy that. Um, I think it's important. Um, I've been watching a program about the continents and how they were formed, which is really cool. Um, and there's lots of things out there um, that are educational. You can find them on all of the streaming services have things that are much more educational than Tiger King. Okay, so we are going to take a little break, do some PSAs and some show promos, and we'll be right back. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. CDC estimates that one in six Americans gets food poisoning each year. Some germs, like listeria, can be deadly for certain people. It targets older adults, people with weakened immune systems, and pregnant women and their newborns. People with listeria infection usually require hospital care, and about one in five who are infected die or miscarry. Know your risk of listeria food poisoning. If you're 65 or older, have a weakened immune system, or are pregnant, you must be especially careful when selecting, preparing, and storing foods. Heat hot dogs and deli meats until steaming hot. Do not consume raw, unpasteurized milk or soft cheeses made from it. And be aware that soft cheeses made from pasteurized milk have also been associated with listeria infections and outbreaks. Learn more about how to prevent listeria food poisoning at cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio.
You have questions about the 2020 census, and we have answers. Let's go to caller number one. Well, what is it? Good question. It's a simple questionnaire that counts everyone living at your address on April 1st. Next caller. So why should I take it? Because it guides how billions in funding gets used each year for things like clinics, fire stations, public transit, and so much more. Caller three, go ahead. What's it have to do with representation? Well, your state's population determines the number of seats it has in the U.S. House of Representatives for the next 10 years. Next. How do you take it? Just look for an invitation in the mail starting March 2020, then complete it online, by phone, or by mail. Let's go to our final caller. Is my information safe? Yes, it can't be shared with anyone. It's the law. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to shape your future. Start here. Learn more at 2020census.gov. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Let us get back and talk about Neanderthals for a minute. And so there is a new find that suggests that Neanderthals may have invented string. Now, we, of course, continue to find more and more evidence that Neanderthals um, were highly intelligent and comparable, basically, to modern humans. And so writing in the journal... Scientific reports, archaeologist Bruce Hardy, a researcher from Kenyon College in Ohio, and his colleague report on a fragment of cord found in southern France and dated to over 41,000 years ago. This makes it the earliest example of fiber technology thus far discovered. The cord and fiber technology in general is an example of an infinite use of finite means, Harvey told Gizmodo. You start by twisting a set of fibers into a strand of yarn. Multiple yarns are twisted to form a court, multiple courts to form a rope, and so on. We cannot make a rope without the preceding steps. In that way, fiber technology is very similar to language. We can't have a sentence without words. We can't have words without sounds that convey meaning. Thus, the cognitive abilities for making string and rope are very similar to those for making language. This speaks to the cognitive ability of Neanderthals. Part, um, and so um, I think that maybe that was supposed to be cords, not courts. I think that might be a typo in the original um, uh, quote. <laughs> so I think it might actually have been multiple yarns are twisted to form a cord, multiple cords to form a rope. Um, but it does say courts in the, um, in the quote that I have. And so prior to this, the oldest fiber evidence was from 19,000 years ago. Uh, so quite a jump. And that was tied to modern humans living in what is now Israel. Now the cord was found at the Abri du Maras site, 
and is constructed of multiple fibers twisted into yarn that were then twisted back to form a cord. It's also very small, actually, uh, just 6.2 millimeters long and five and 0.5 millimeters wide. Now that's only about two tenths of an inch long. It was attached to an old stone tool around two inches long. And the researchers suggest that it was either used in a binding that would have attached that flake to a handle or the cord from a bag or other object used to cut to carry the cutting tool. The date for the cord between 41,000 and 52,000 years ago predates the arrival of modern humans in the area. And so for a long time, Neanderthals were in parts of Europe and modern humans had not actually yet migrated into those parts of the country or of the continent, I should say. And so the date was arrived at by uh, comparing its um, place in the local stratigraphy. Spectroscopic and microscopic analysis showed that the fiber is made of cellulose, most likely from the inner bark of a non-flowering tree, such as a conifer or evergreen tree. In order to get this fiber, you have to strip the outer bark off a tree to scrape off the inner bark, explained Hardy. This is best done in spring or early summer. Often, these fibers are soaked in water for a period of time before being broken down into individual fibers. At this point, they can be twisted into string or rope. In addition, making cords requires an understanding of math skills, such as pairs, sets, and numbers. To make a string or rope, you have to understand some basic mathematical concepts, Harvey goes on. Pairs and sets of numbers are combined in different ways to make the cord structure. In this case, three bundles of fibers were twisted to make yarn or strands and then twisted in the opposite direction to make a cord. A set of three strands produces a stronger cord than just two. From there, pairs or sets of cords can be twisted to make larger and stronger ropes. And so this sophisticated knowledge just adds to the mystery of why these intelligent, hardy cousins of ours went extinct. Um, it is really a mystery. Um, there's obviously still a lot of speculation as to how that happened. Um, I don't have a particular favorite theory. Um, I think it's really weird that they went extinct, given all of the things that we've learned about them over the last um, 10 or 20 years about how they were clearly comparable to modern humans. And I guess it was physiological differences would be my best guess that they just had certain physiological traits that didn't adapt them well enough to environments where they were outcompeted by modern humans. Okay. So let us move on um, quite a bit forward in time and talk about a couple of archaeological finds. First off, after searching for more than a quarter century, archaeologists may finally have located the capital city of Sak Tzizi, a Maya kingdom that's referenced in sculptures and inscriptions from across the ancient Maya world. 
Of course, it turns out that this was one of those stories where instead of it being found by archaeologists who have been scouring maps and uh, LIDAR uh, readings and everything, it was actually a local man <laughs> who happened to discover a two by four foot uh, tablet near Lacanya Tetzlal, which is a community in Chiapas, Mexico. And so um, the um, tablet has various sections with inscriptions that recount things like a mythical water serpent, uh, various unnamed gods, a mythic flood, and accounts of births, lives, and battles of ancient rulers. And this is according to a statement from Brandeis University. And so Sak Tzizi'i, sat on what now is the border between Mexico and Guatemala. And one of the interesting things about it is that it definitely wasn't the most uh, powerful kingdom, according to Charles Golden, an associate professor of anthropology at Brandeis. And so it turns out that it was uh, surrounded by stronger neighbors, which at times probably helped it, but evidence actually suggests that the kingdom's capital city was probably occupied. Um, oh, sorry. Um, it was actually in occupation from around 750 BC up until around a thousand years later. So even though um, it was surrounded by stronger neighbors, it was able to maintain itself, which is pretty impressive. Um and so the researchers suggest that part of that could have been from natural protections. It was protected by a stream with a steep ravine on one side and defensive masonry walls on the others. So, you know, a good defense is the best uh, offense in some respects. And so, yes, I know it's usually the other way around. <laughs> um and so they suspect that it probably benefited from strategic peace deals with those more powerful neighbors. Um, and so it turns out, though, that um, Sektziki was actually a uh, pretty form formidable enemy and important ally for those bigger kingdoms because Part of the reason why they've been looking for it is that it shows up so frequently frequently in texts at those other sites, according to the researchers. Now, the kingdom did obviously experience conflict both with its neighbors and from nature, because, for instance, there's a figure of a dancing ruler carved into the bottom of the tablet. This ruler is dressed like the god Yopat who is associated with violent tropical storms. The figure holds a lightning bolt axe in its right hand and a stone weapon used in ritual combat in its left hand. And it turns out that there is another sculpture at the site that appears to tell of a fire that destroyed part of the city during an actual battle between the city and one of its neighbors. And so excavations have been going on there since the summer of 2018. And so several structures have been identified, including the remains of a pyramid, a royal palace, and a ball court, which are kind of the big three you need for a Maya um, city-state. 
And so the um, pyramid would have once stood around 45 feet tall and um, is surrounded by structures that might have served as houses for elites and religious rituals. And it actually had a number of stelae, which are carved stone slabs around it. And so one of them shows Noble's feet facing outward toward the viewer, which is an unusual depiction otherwise featured only on a Maya on a few Maya vases, according to the researchers. And so they actually also found a 1.5 acre courtyard ca- called the Plaza Mukulton, or Monuments Plaza, where people would have gathered for religious and political ceremonies. And so this is kind of a big deal, though, because um, they really have been looking for this site for a long time because it had been uh, referenced in so many other places. And so um, they're hoping that they'll find more inscriptions and they're also going to, next time, um, they are going to start doing LIDAR uh, sweeps over it to see if they can find out if there are more buildings in the area. And so they are also really, really wondering how they, if they can figure out exactly how it did manage to survive for so long, being not particularly strong and being survived surrounded by much stronger uh, city-states. So we'll have to see if they find out more information as, as they continue to work. All right, so let's talk about new evidence about the Calusa civilization. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you've never heard of the Calusa. I'm actually just reading more about them um, now, and I think I've only heard of them, about them briefly once or twice. But apparently they had a rich and complex society that spanned much of modern southwest Florida, beginning around 2,000 years ago. What's been a puzzle for many years is how they did how they did that, how they were able to maintain such a complex society because there are no signs that they engaged in widespread agriculture. And so new evidence suggests that they were able to maintain resources by creating what researchers call water courts, which were able to capture and store live fish, thus allowing them to maintain sufficient food surpluses to allow for the development of a sophisticated society with large construction projects. Their capital city, called Kalos, was located near modern Fort Myers in what is now known as Mound Key Archaeological State Park. Researchers have been studying the civilization for decades, decades, including artificial islands made from discarded shells, remains of dwellings, and sophisticated dredging canals. Unlike their southern peers who developed sophisticated agriculture based on maize and other New World staples like potatoes, squash, and beans, um, and despite not having grain surpluses, they managed large construction projects, had a strong military presence, and contributed tribute from people situated hundreds of miles around them. What makes the Calusa different is that most other societies that achieve this level of complexity and power are principally farming cultures, explains William McCart, a co-author of the study and a researcher at the Florida Museum of Natural History in a press release. 
For a long time, societies that relied on fishing, hunting, and gathering were assumed to be less advanced. But our work over the past 35 years has shown the Calusa developed a politically complex society with sophisticated architecture, religion, a military, specialists, long-distance trade, and social ranking, all without being farmers. Now, previous work had argued that the courts would have held fish, but this study is the first to look at them comprehensively and to track when they were created, how they connected to other parts, and how they connected to other parts of the civilization. Two water courts at Mound Key, which flank a canal measuring 100 feet wide and 2,000 feet long, were, uh, were excavated. They analyzed the area using core samples, remote sensing, and bits of discarded shell and fish bones. It turns out that the courts were built atop a foundation of oyster shells and were rectangular in shape around 36,000 square feet, um, or according to some of the um, articles, about 62% of a modern American football field. Um <laughs> I'm always fascinated by how people make comparisons to things that they think, uh, you know, the average reader would know about. Um, like, you know, then when they talk about a whale being the size of, for instance, like a school bus, I always think it's really interesting what things are picked for that sort of comparison. Um, so in this case, 62% of a modern uh, football field, American football, obviously. And so they would have been constructed by walling off portions of estuaries in order to create holding pens for fish. The three-foot-high walls were made from shell and sediment, with nets or gates most likely used to prevent the fish from escaping. Now, they were not the product of simply middens um, that built up and made them look like they were a structure. Um, they actually were carefully constructed um, they were a carefully constructed product for a specific person purpose. This would have required knowledge of tidal systems, hydrology, and marine biology. The researchers found traces of mullet, pinfish, and herring, which are all schooling species of fish. They were most likely used for short-term storage of fish before they were then dried or smoked or otherwise processed. Evidence from cores shows a buildup of of organic materials, suggesting that the waters were not being replenished all the time, um, that they were just sort of sitting in a pool there. We can't know exactly how the courts worked, but our gut feeling is that storage would have been short-term, on the order of hours to a few days, not for months at a time, said Michael Severisi, a co-author of the study and a geologist from Florida Gulf Coast University. The wa these water courts would have been constructed between 1300 and 1400. This period also coincides with major upgrades to a large dwelling researchers refer to as the house. It was most likely the home of Calus, a Calusa king known from the mid-16th century. The dwelling could have held as many as 2,000 people and was most likely the seat of power for a long-lived corporate group, which dominated the area for some 500 years. They think that by this time, the population of the area would have been around 20,000. 
around 20,000 people with a complex political system. Unfortunately, as with most other Native American groups, the kingdom collapsed with the influx of European conquerors. But it is a quite unique example of a large kingdom that thrived without the use of some sort of agricultural staple. And so that's really cool to find a uh, what is ostensibly a hunter-gatherer community that was uh, engaged in large-scale um, civilization with, um, you know, a stratified um, society and with tributes and a standing army and all of that stuff without there being uh, agriculture. That's very unique. And so I think it's really cool. And it's also really cool to know that there are these amazing places in America um, because, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Inca, but um, we also had pretty amazing complex civilizations here. Obviously, a lot of people know about the Anasazi um, and the ancestors of the Hopi, but there's also Cahokia, um, in the Midwest, which was a huge, thriving civilization for many hundreds of years, um, built really monumental structures, lots of incredibly impressive things that went on there. And also the, the um, people in Florida. And so it's important to remember that we definitely had our own amazing uh, civilizations here in America. And that also... There were a lot of really impressive and amazing people here, and the idea that um, Europeans came here and improved anything is laughable at best. And so I'm always uh, very wary about talking about anything other than the Europeans being uh, conquerors and usurpers and that sort of thing at this point, because it's very clear that... People here were doing just fine before um, Americans got here. Um, I've actually been watching, uh, I was watching a television show the other day, and there was a snippet about uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe. And I was just thinking about how convenient that was, because it came out just at a time when they really needed to convert the uh, Native peoples to Christianity. Um, but that's a story for another day. Um, let us now move on and talk about one of the weirdest and most wonderfully just odd forms of life on this planet, and that is a siphonophore. And so um, I think I've talked about siphonophores before. They're weird. They're very weird. Um, the one you might be most familiar with would be the Japanese man of, I'm sorry, the, um, the uh, man of war. And, um, is it the Japanese man of war? I'm just completely drawing a blank right now. But anyways, Portuguese man of war. I knew it wasn't Japanese. The, I'm so sorry. Uh, the Portuguese man of war. And so, um, that is a siphonophore. And so the thing about siphonophores is that they are technically sort of one animal. Um, but they are also made up of, uh, tons and tons of much tinier animals called zooids. And so when zo zooids are hatched, they are asexual and they are kind of, um, 
sort of amorphous. And then as they come together, they form different parts of the actual um, larger siphonophore. And so researchers have now found one that is 150 feet long in a submarine canyon off the coast of Australia. And so this is amazing. It's now the longest one that they've found, and it's pretty crazily long um, for this to be just a, it looks just basically like a, like a white ribbon just curling around and around and around. And so it was found by the research vessel Falcor um, while exploring deep sea canyons near Australia's Ningalu Colt coast. And so it was the ROV Sebastian. Oh dear. (laughs) Punny names. And so back in March, researchers using the same ROV discovered gardens and graveyards of coral in three submarine canyons off South Australia. And then during this latest voyage, uh, through waters off of Western Australia, the researchers also discovered large colonies of glass sponges and other species. And they found the largest ever example of the giant siphonophore genus Apollemia. And so the research was funded by the Schmidt Ocean Institute. And so um, that's a good thing. If you're looking for something to do, um, There are many channels out there on YouTube and on the web of deep sea um, projects that are going on right now. Um, I really love Evie Nautilus and um, there's another one. I can't remember what it's called, but if you look for um, Evie Nautilus is the big one that I usually watch. Um, You can find it on websites, YouTube, all over the place, and you can just watch an ROV troll around the bottom of the ocean and it is just so magnificent to see all of these things that you would never be able to see with your own eyes ever um and so they just are showing you all sorts of fish um lots of chimera fish which look a little bit they're little shark kind of fishes but they've got giant eyes because of course they're on the bottom of the sea And so, um, but, um, all sorts of things, incredible siphonophores. Um, I remember one that was sort of a turquoisey color and it just looked like, it looked like, um, Christmas tree tinsel. (laughs) And so, yeah, again, siphonophores are really, really weird creatures. Um, I think they're distantly related to jellyfish, um, And yeah, so you see lots of, um, sponges and it's amazing how many different kinds of beautiful sponges there are and all sorts of little creatures, crabs and shrimps and, uh, isopods and, uh, sea pigs, uh, sea cucumbers, so many cool things. And so if you're looking for something to do to break the monotony, I would definitely, uh, look into, uh, back the backlog of um, some of these amazing uh, explorer explorers that are out there using ROVs to show us exactly what is at the bottom of the sea. So uh, that being said, I think that this is going to conclude my first um, 
show back from uh, the break. I hope that I will be able to do this weekly. I'm sorry that the recording is less than it would be had I been in the studio, uh, but obviously I'm recording this from home to be safe and to make sure that everything is, I'm doing all I can to keep myself and others safe. And please, please remember that that is the watchword for now is to try and keep safe and sound um, and to make sure that we are all able to get through this and get back to normalcy on the other side. So I hope that you're all doing well and I will almost certainly be back next week barring any unforeseen circumstances. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.